Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. Today's podcast will focus on the intersection of racism, masculinity, and health for black boys and men. Dr. Wisdom Powell is a clinical psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Health Behavior at the University of North Carolina Gilling School of Global Public Health. She is recognized nationally for her work on the social determinants of health inequities among boys and men of color. Dr. Powell, thanks for joining us. Let's hear a little bit more about you and your work. Thank you again for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about the work. I'm currently an associate professor of health behavior at UNC Chapel Hill um, in the Gilling School of Global Public Health, and I also am associate director for the Center for Health Equity Research. I do lots of work both from the research perspective but also in the policy translation space around the health and well-being of boys and men of color in the United States. I focus specifically on the health and well-being of um, black men and boys and really trying to understand how notions about gender, you know, those ideas about who men and boys should be in the world, those shared values and expectations, how those norms and values shape health beliefs, practices, outcomes, and men's decisions to engage with healthcare providers. But I also take into consideration other factors that sort of evolve in their day-to-day life and over their life course that can impact their health. But really the goal is to build a portfolio that can help eliminate some of the disparities that we see, but also help to improve the outcomes for men and boys. Great. And speaking of the disparities, much of your work focuses on the social determinants of health inequities among boys and men of color. Can you describe what you mean by the social determinants of health inequities? So a lot of times when we think about health or health outcomes, we think about what individuals can do. You know, do they exercise? Do they go to the doctor? Do they brush their teeth? Do they eat the fruits and vegetables that they need? And those things are important. What individuals do to be healthier matters. But often, even when people are doing their best, there are larger forces at play that can shape their health and that can impact their capacity to live their fullest, most optimal self or or state of well-being. And so when I say social determinants, I'm talking about those factors where boys and men of color live, work, play, get educated, get health care, those kinds of structural issues in their immediate and broader social context that can, can shape their health. And these can include things like social economic factors, housing, other spaces where events happen or, or processes unfold that could shape their health outcomes. So with regards to health disparities, black men are often disproportionately affected by disease, injury, death, disability, and other health indicators. What are the core contributing factors to these disparities that exist? These are really complex, you know, wicked problems that we're talking about this morning. And when you think about all of the ways people can end up with the kinds of disparities that we observe in this population, you 
immediately begin to see how complicated it is to describe what might be causing or leading to these disparities. So I want to say first that when we're trying to nail down the disproportionality, we have to first start with sort of naming it. And you probably know, and most of the listeners will know, that when we look at the data, the hard data, on indicators such as life expectancy, for example, we see that black men uh, die sooner than most individuals in U.S. society. They still live the shortest lives of all individuals in all other race, sex groups. And that's a pretty profound statistic. Now, when you think about life expectancy or premature death, I mean, you can imagine across one's life, many, many things could happen. That person could have grown up in a neighborhood where he didn't have early access to health care. He could have been exposed to trauma that was undiagnosed or undetected, and then that trauma has then created a vortex of, of complication that lead to poor mental health or substance abuse, and then that puts the person on a trajectory for health disparities. And there are also perhaps some interactions between those kinds of factors and an individual's biology. I mean, the, the reality is that when we look at men or males, we see that there are some biological risk factors for men. Men, male fetuses tend to die um, more, more often in utero than females. They have fewer immune system T, T cells than women, and some data suggests that men may be more, or males may be more susceptible to rapid biological aging. So there are also those complicated biological factors that kind of shape those trajectories. But here's the point. If those things were solely determined by an individual's biology, if it were in fact that all males are more likely to have these kinds of poor health outcomes, then we would see the same pattern of health outcomes or or inequities across men from all other race, sex groups, and we know that that's not the case. And so my work really tries to look at some of the unique factors, contributing factors to these disparities for black men. What we have found, um, and something that I've been really interested in studying, is that when men are exposed to early life course, positive messages around getting health care, taking care of their bodies and minds, and when they see that modeled in their families and communities, we see much less medical mistrust or mistrust of doctors and suspicion of health care providers, and therefore more health care services used. So that's one factor. The other thing that we know is that when people are experiencing a lot of stressful life events, that those stress events can be distracting. I mean, imagine if your decision for the day is, you know, am I going to deal with the complication that arises out of the loss of someone I care about or a stress that arises as a function of you trying to get a job and take care of your family. The last thing in your mind in that moment is making a health appointment for preventive checkups. And so those factors can also create the, they can be sort of a catalyst for poor health as, as, and health disparities. Exactly. And I think one of the interesting factors that often comes up that's particularly salient for black boys and men is having to deal with 
racism as well as various forms of discrimination. And I know within your work, you concentrate on that uh, in various aspects. Can you talk a little bit about that and especially this term everyday racial discrimination that's used in your work? Yeah. So, you know, we are living in a society that is not post-racial and nothing makes that more clear than the, than the current dynamics in our society that all of us are seeing unfolding around us, but that are not new to folks who lived, say, during the civil rights movement and before, but quite frankly, have such an enduring impact on our lives that warrants more discussion. I think one of the things that we have started to have more national conversation about is the disproportionate amount of police-related killings that we see happening to black men and boys and other boys and men of color. This kind of disproportionality is a consequence to some degree of more heightened surveillance. The data suggests that, you know, black men and boys are more likely than white men and boys to be stopped and frisked and to have the kinds of interactions with law enforcement officers that can escalate into the kinds of killings that we've been observing in our nation here recently. And so the elephant in the room about everyday racial discrimination is that sometimes it can be lethal and it can show up in ways that can impact the health of of black men and boys. And, you know, a lot of times when we think about stop and frisk data or data related to police killings, we think of those data points as criminal justice data, but really they are public health data because when we have a significant loss of life, a premature loss of life due to these kinds of killings, it creates an impact on population level health. And so I think we have to start thinking about, and there are researchers who are doing this work, about how everyday racial discrimination shows up in ways that can have more broader population health implications. And so when I talk about everyday racial discrimination, first, when I talk about racial discrimination, I'm talking about those byproducts of race that show up in our social interactions, the way we treat each other, the policies that come to bear on our um, everyday lives, the transactions that we have with systems, and that are the byproduct of a belief system that marginalizes other groups and lifts up the the other folks in society. But by everyday racism, I'm talking about those things that happen as people move throughout their day. So, for example, like some people have talked about everyday racial discrimination as microaggressions or microinvalidations or microassaults. And by micro, we don't mean that they're small in impact. We just mean that they're fleeting and subtle and hard to to detect in some cases. But these are things like walking into a store and shopping and someone assuming that you're the person there working, that you're part of the service staff, or treating you as if you are invisible, or trying to hail a cab in New York City and no one will pick you up. And what's important about these is that they're more chronic and persistent. And because they are, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? So you have these interactions every day in your life, and they chip away both at your humanity, but they also tax your coping, you know, your coping supports. Because if you have to, one, attend to these, so attending to them can create a burden, 
but then you have to figure out what you're going to do about them. And in most cases, you don't have an opportunity to come to the table and have a conversation with someone about how they've hurt you. You just end up walking away from it, those kinds of transactions full with all kinds of things, like questions like, oh, was that really about me? Was it about my race? Was it about my gender? What was happening in that transaction? And all of that creates a cognitive, emotional, and physiological burden. And so we have data to suggest that when men, black men, experience everyday racial discrimination in higher frequencies, that they have more concurrent depressive symptoms. We have some data to suggest that when men are exposed to everyday racial discrimination more frequently, that they have more signs of rapid biological aging. And what that means is that your body is aging faster than your chronological age. That impact can be significant, pronounced, and lead to all kinds of negative health outcomes. I think the good news is that we are a resilient people, and that doesn't mean that what we experience needs to be taken lightly, because I think sometimes when people think about resilience, they forget that the person has taken a hit. They think about the bounce back, but we are resilient. And so fortunately, because of that resilience, we don't see every person who's exposed to everyday racial discrimination, every black man exposed to everyday racial discrimination, sort of having negative health outcomes. I mean, there are lots of protective factors in our communities and our families and intra-individually that can help people overcome and, 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 and cope with those exposures. But, you know, we are not going to be able to cope our way out of the health impacts of everyday racial discrimination, so we shouldn't expect black men to do that. So to really have a positive impact there, like how do we then get around the health effects of everyday racial discrimination, we need to change systems and policies that create context where black men feel strapped and invisible and when they're, uh, you know, and where they feel burdened. I mean, I think that's really important, getting back to our earlier conversation about social determinants. Like, we need to change those things. And it's the work that we need to do on the systemic level that often gets discounted. I loved what you said about the fact that although we are resilient, it doesn't mean that we didn't actually take hits and there wasn't an impact from everyday racial discrimination, microaggressions, microassaults, and what have you. It just means that folks have developed coping mechanisms and ways to combat with it, but there's still these lingering health effects that really affect individuals as well as communities. Yeah, and you know, Jason, I think the other thing that we forget is that a lot of times people are experiencing these things and suffering in silence. Because they are subtle, it's not the kind of racism that showed up pre-civil rights. And during the civil rights movement, very rarely, thankfully, there are, you know, there are, there are cross burnings and the kinds of major discriminatory events. These are so fleeting and subtle and chronic that often that characteristic makes it even more difficult for people to feel like what they've experienced is valid. And not having that sense that your experience is valid can also create an additional burden uh, you know, psychological and physical bur- physiological burden. And it, it also sounds like if you already feel that your experience may not be validated by others, then why talk about it at all? Why bring it up? Right. So I would assume that, you know, racial discrimination can be one of the contributing factors to not only poor health outcomes, but also 
a barrier to help seeking among men, especially among black boys and men. Can you talk about some of the other barriers to help seeking that you see within this population? If we want to start at the structural level, men in the United States are less likely to have health insurance. I mean, this is pre-ACA data, so I'm not sure how we've done with getting men insured as a result of the Affordable Care Act. But prior to the introduction of that important bill, we saw, you know, consistently over time that regardless of education, income, or employment status, men were just less likely to be insured. So healthcare acts, and this is even more pronounced among racial and ethnic minority groups like African-American or black men. So access is a huge barrier to help seeking, you know, among black men. Knowing where to go and having a regular or usual provider, uh, a primary care medical home, you know, can be a pathway to getting the kind of health care that you need. And most men are less, you know, black men rather are less likely than women, black women and white women and white men to have a usual provider or usual place to go. So the structural level, those things do matter and I think um, need to be attended to if we're going to really make a difference in, in moving the needle on the sort of lower lower levels of health seeking for black men. But then there are all these other things, you know, attitudes about healthcare systems and structures and providers that can prevent men from, you know, wanting to seek care. And these are, you know, rooted in real historical injustices. Now, most of the times when we talk about black men in healthcare, lots of folks will talk about the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis among the Negro male, um, most notably known as the Tuskegee experiment. And yes, that was a critically relevant incident of systematic medical malice against black men and women. But I think that there are also more immediate things in one's environment that remind folks that they may not be treated okay if they go to the doctor. So a lot of times when we talk to men about their healthcare experiences, that when they actually go to the doctor, that they are treated in ways that make them feel less empowered. The communities that we serve here in North Carolina have talked to us about being treated with less respect, doctors rushing through the appointment, folks not looking them in the eye, and a simple respectful way of greeting a person. I mean, I grew up in a community where everybody was Miss Ann or Mr. John. I mean, no one was called <laughs> by their first name. And, you know, those kinds of ways of greeting and treating people have impacts on their thought process about whether or not they're going to go back. But then there are also just this issue around gender norms that affect people's decisions to go get care. So, you know, we've all heard the term or the saying, boys don't cry, take it like a man. Those kinds of norms or shared values around what we expect men and boys to do, see, who we expect them to be. And when you hear that and you're exposed to those kinds of norms, it can shape your willingness to tell people whether or not you are experiencing a health problem or whether or not you are, in fact, in need of support. And so when men buy into those norms, when they believe that they need to be tough and strong and stoic, 
then they're less likely to tell someone when they're feeling like their health may be compromised, both their mental and physical health. So I think that those norms, those masculinity norms, can have a significant impact on men's decision-making. And it's not always that, that it's a negative impact, but those norms are alive and well. And in a community of men and boys who have been systematically marginalized and made in some ways to feel less empowered, sometimes you take back what you can. And I always describe men's decisions not to go to the doctor as them really want to take back their bodies, you know, to take back dominion over their some aspect of themselves that they can control. And so I think that the issues are complicated in terms of the barriers, but those are some of the ones that come up for us most in the work that, that we do here. And I think that's incredibly interesting because I've never heard the idea of masculinity as a help-seeking barrier, but framed as this sense of autonomy and control for the individual. So this taking back of the male body is a notion that I don't know if folks are really talking about that. I mean, it's very important for us to think about the, the logic behind what we're observing. You know, sometimes folks go quickly to the, this doesn't make sense, why aren't people going to get health care when they know they need to get health care? But we need to put this all in context and consider when people are enacting a set of behaviors, there's always some underlying root cause for that behavior. And for each individual, those root causes might be different, but there are some common ones. And I do think that feeling marginalized and disempowered can lead folks to really try to recoup and restore power in whatever ways they have immediate, most immediately available to them. And sometimes that shows up as them saying, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to allow them to have that kind of dominion over my well-being. Which definitely does make it extremely complicated. So I'm wondering, as a practitioner, what can I do within my agency or within my role in my organization to really contend with issues of masculinity, given the context of the individual and how they feel about really taking power over their own health, although I identify it as a barrier? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things we have to realize is that gender norms and issues around gender equity are not just issues that women and girls are impacted by. In fact, socially vulnerable and marginalized men also have tremendous issues that arise out of the lack of a kind of gendered equity. And so we have paid a lot of attention, and, you know, I'm a woman, I'm happy to see that we've taken as a nation of, you know, a strong interest in women's health. But our fates are linked, and we, I would say we need the same kind of systematic attention to the role that gender plays and how that impacts processes of care. And so for providers and professionals, we need to recognize when we see boys and, and, and men, black boys and men, in our practices, in our community mental health centers, in our physician's offices, that we need to be thinking about the gender dynamics that are at play and really approach that healthcare encounter with that lens, which means, you know, appointment maximization. You know, you know that if most men had it their way, they wouldn't go to the doctor until a limb was severed or, or you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it just, it takes a long time to get 
men there. So when they're there, you need to do as much as you can in that appointment as you can possibly do, and that means providing health education materials, checking in and doing depression screening, asking about family dynamics and stress, and and really talking to men about how they're coping with and managing the stress and the events that happen in their lives. I think having a, a gender sort of gender mainstreaming, for lack of a better way uh, of describing it, approach to how we implement our care practices and policies and approaches to, to treat, you know, interacting with black men and boys is going to be really important. The other thing I've been thinking a lot about is how do we then get, create a healthcare system structure or or practice structure that really honors the way men like to get things done. And I think to the degree that we can offer, you know, non-traditional hours for men to go to the doctor, you know, or come into a practice, I think the, that is something structurally that might, you know, eliminate some of the barriers for black men and other men and boys in getting care. Because most men are concerned about providing for their families and providing for themselves and making a way out of no way. And they're not going to prioritize, you know, getting a health care appointment if that means it's going to have some impact on their living wage or on their, you know, their um, interactions with their supervisors at work, like taking a day off for some men is a hard thing to do. And so we need to create clinic hours that will allow men to come to the doctor at times that are more convenient for them. But it's very, you know, you know, minimum here. I mean, and I maybe minimum isn't even right. Maximum. Black men want to feel like they're they, they are respected and human, and people see them in their fullest human potential. And so, when we are interacting with them, we need to do it respectfully and with an an appreciation for their humanity. The very appreciation we would all want for our humanity. That's beautiful. Dr. Powell, I do want to thank you so much for lending your expertise and really taking us through not only your work, but concrete steps that we as practitioners and folks that just generally care can actually do to contend with some of these health inequities and issues that we see within our country. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I'd like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Dr. Wisdom Powell, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together. Mm-hmm.